Good morning. I'm Mike Shockey. I am a pastoral resident here, and I want to say right up front, I'm a theology nerd. So I'll apologize for that a little bit. My hope this morning is, is that the abstract things that kind of turn me on about the Scripture, really digging down in there and sometimes not finding any application whatsoever, it just really made me happy, you know. I want for this John 9 uh, passage to speak to you, frankly, the way that it has spoken to me, not necessarily in the same manner, but with the same impact. So that's something that really makes me very happy, really, just digging into the Scripture. What does not make me super happy, but I still love him. So, Pastor David, I would take a bullet for that guy. Like, I would. Like, we're great friends, love him, we're very similar in a lot of ways. We're both Alabama boys, roll tide. Oh, man, I was going to have to let that sit in. At the 915, they were like, okay, good work. But when David said, hey, you've got about 35 to 40 minutes to take on about three or four weeks worth of work in John chapter 9, that's all you've got, I've diminished my affections for him down to, I might take like a snowball for him, maybe a pea shooter, something of that nature. Nevertheless, I do want to tell you about uh, our friend Brad, and that is, as soon as I open up this, I can tell Brad's story without this, but this is very helpful, so... Brad is from Zimbabwe, and we were talking to him uh, and his wife here very recently uh, while we were in Orlando, and he was telling me a story about how he was uh, saved at an early age, how he lost his way, as it were, and by the time he was in his teens, he was very well studied in the Scripture and wasn't doing anything with it, wasn't walking according to what he knew and so, one afternoon in the school car, uh, courtyard there in Zimbabwe, there's an atheist who is telling a group of students that have gathered around him all about why he doesn't believe in God. And he was basing this out of the Da Vinci Code. He had just finished watching and reading this, and he was talking up a big thing about how he doesn't believe in God. And Brad said, well, I'm not having any of that, so I'm going to join this debate. So Brad jumps in there and begins to have counter-arguments that are really rather successful against this atheist. And now Brad says, before I know it, 30, 40, 50 kids are gathered around in this courtyard and they're listening to this debate and they're cheering me on every time I kind of shoot him down on that next principle, on that next atheistic thing about why he doesn't believe in God. And man, at the end of it, he literally just says, all right, you know, I just don't know as much about the Bible as you do, man. You know, you got me on this one, right? And everybody cheers, and Brad says, you know, I felt really good about that. And then the atheist guy says to him, and this is the way Brad says that Jesus showed him how blind he was and opened his eyes all at the same time. That atheist guy says, it's great that you know all that stuff, but how come we never see you living like you know all that stuff? All right, John Frame, a professor of ours in seminary, he would often say, you know, Christians a lot of times don't need to know more things. They need to do more with what they know. Yep. We're going to talk about that today in John chapter 9. If you will, turn there. I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. And if you will stand out of reverence for the Word of God. We're going to start in verse 1 through 7. And then we're going to jump down to uh, 24 through 41. 
As I told him in the earlier service, this is going to take just a minute, but remember in Nehemiah, they stood for like six hours listening to the word of God and they loved it, right? So a couple minutes here for you guys. This is the word of God. John chapter 9, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so that the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the tasks assigned us by the one who sent us. The night is coming and then no one can work. But while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world. Then he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. And he told him, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means scent. So the man went and washed, and he came back seeing. Now to verse 24. So for the second time, they, the Pharisees, had called the man in who had been blind, told him, God should get the glory for this because we know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. I don't know whether he's a sinner, the man replied, but I know this. I was blind and now I can see. But what did he do, they asked. How did he heal you? Look, the man exclaimed, I told you once, didn't you listen? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they cursed him and said, you're his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know God spoke to Moses, but we don't even know where this man comes from. Why, that's very strange, the man replied. He healed my eyes, and yet you don't know where he comes from? We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but he's ready to hear those who worship him and do his will. Ever since the world began, no one has been able to open the eyes of someone born blind. If this man were not from God, he couldn't have done it. You were born a total sinner, they answered, and are you trying to teach us? And so they threw him out of the synagogue. When Jesus heard what had happened, he found the man and asked, do you believe in the Son of Man? The man answered, Who is he, sir? I want to believe in him. You have seen him, Jesus said, and he is speaking to you. Yes, Lord, I believe, the man said, and he worshiped Jesus. Then Jesus told him, I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind, and to show those who think that they see that they are blind. And some of the Pharisees who were standing nearby heard him and asked, are you saying we're blind? If you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty, Jesus replied, but you remain guilty because you claim you can see. Guys, ladies, it's the word of God, undefiled. And for that, we say to God, thanks be to God. You can be seated. I wish I could spend more time on some things in this message, things like the huge concept that flows from verses two and three, where we see that our suffering is sovereignly and lovingly designed and used by God to bring himself glory through our worship. Our suffering is sovereign, sovereignly and lovingly designed and used by God to bring himself glory through our worship. That right there is worth about four or five weeks, maybe four or five years worth of delving into. The fact that ours and our parents' inherent sin, I'd love to talk about that, how that does in fact issue forth our suffering on some level. There's no question about that, but at the same time, individual sins, as Jesus shows here, do not always equal specific punishments or sufferings for us. It's not tit for tat, 
particularly when we're in Christ by faith. I'd love to do an entire message on how Jesus is orchestrating the events in this passage during a period of time between two Jewish festivals that carry the significant symbolic freight of cleansing, new beginnings, and light, particularly when he says, I am the light of the world. There's so many other things in this text that we could mine because it's just that rich with both the reality and the symbolism of Jesus of Nazareth, the man, showing himself, displaying himself to be the long-awaited Messiah. But God has been chipping away at me over the past week or so in response to me begging him to show me, how does this affect me? How, how, how is this passage moving me? And I don't think that's selfish, right? It's not all about experience. I don't think it's selfish because I'm a member of the body of Christ. You, with faith in Christ, are a member of the body of Christ. So what he's showing is a word for the church. It is a theme and a lesson for the church. But he's brought me over and over again back to a very specific theme in this text. And again, it is definitive for us. The theme in John 9 comes in two forms. It comes in the form of an assurance of salvation, first of all. And everybody needs that. Everybody along their walk needs the assurance of their salvation. And then it comes in a polarly opposite way, as a solemn warning regarding our fleshly tendencies towards spiritual blindness. I will add towards social blindness, towards political blindness, towards you pick the blindness. In this context, it's a religious blindness, a theological blindness that turns into uh, social kind of blindness. But this blindness is the kind of thing God is pointing out here that we are staunchly unwilling to acknowledge and confess when Jesus clearly points it out to us. This is not a blindness we're unaware of. This is a blindness that he comes and says, you're blind, and you say, no, man, I'm good. And so our big idea, as I like to call it, or our theme for today that we're going to be working from is this, is that as Christians, if being right ever becomes more important than being righteous or being made righteous, then we can be absolutely certain that we have a form of blindness that only Jesus Christ can and must heal if we're to live with honest gospel purpose. If we pick right over righteous, and by the way, there is not a single person in this room, somewhere out there in the world, in the Christian world at all, there's not a single person who's not guilty of that to some degree. That's just the human condition. We pick right over righteous a lot, and we need to be aware of it. God says on the one hand, that through the faith that he has provided us in Jesus Christ alone, remember that's faith that he has provided us, that he loves us infinitely and eternally and nothing, Romans 8, 26 through 39 says, nothing can change that, nothing can interrupt that. There's an assurance there. We'll talk about that. 
And on the other hand, if we continue to be okay with our blind spots, like again, being right about our thing, whatever our thing is, our theological thing, our social thing, our political thing, whatever that is, to the exclusion of being made righteous and submitting ourselves, as it were, to being made righteous, if we continue to be right over righteous and we keep pushing back on Jesus every time he points out our blindness, we keep pushing back every time he offers us a cure, we're going to be in danger of one or both of two things. We may not be saved at all. We may be in total darkness, claiming all the while that we know God. That's the Pharisees in this story. Or on a much less eternally damning level, we will not have the impact on culture that we are, as the church, supposed to have if we keep pushing back against Jesus. Because guys, we're the ones, we're the ones, the church, Acts 17, 26, the book of James, I don't know, probably every book of the Bible, I can think of at least 30 other verses. We're the ones that God puts into the world in order to guide the world through, I don't know, bad forms of government, sexual issues, racial issues, family issues, issues, issues. We're the ones. And one of the big signs that we are, got a blind spot, maybe we're not totally blind, but one of the big signs that we've got a huge blind spot about being right versus being righteous is that we're depending on the right form of government, be it left or right, we're depending on the right form of government to settle those issues that God says he's called us into the world to guide the culture through. I have those same blind spots. Don't ever get the impression that I'm up here saying, I've got it all figured out, get up here with me. I never have it figured out. I preach to me as much as anyone. So how did we get here to this kind of theme for this passage? I mean, come on, Mike. I thought this was all about I was blind and now I can see. Is it not just that simple? Well, in a lot of regards, it is. But guys, if we focus primarily on the gift of sight given to the blind beggar, then we're going to easily miss the fact that Jesus is above all things. He is orchestrating and using this occasion as a means by which to glorify God the Father by showing himself as Messiah. And in the economy of God, you guys tell me real quick, in the economy of God, the giving and receiving of his gifts to us is or is not more important than glorifying himself. It is not, right? In the economy of God, glorifying himself always is massively, massively above the giving and receiving of his gifts to his people. And yet, when he does give the blind beggar sight, Look at what happens. The beggar yields himself in full, honest worship of God. He doesn't just receive it and then move on. Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him, that I may revel in him, that I may dwell in him and him in me? While the beggar's healing is an incredible aspect of the narrative, it again is not the primary focus. 
Instead, the focus of what's happening is seen in what Jesus says in verse 3. Verse 3, Jesus says, the reason this is going on, first of all, is so that the power of God can be seen in him. Now to channel my inner Bob Evans with a little bit of original language work. So that the ways in which God works can be seen clearly through this situation of which this beggar is a pivotal part. That's what's happening here. That's what's going on. So let's look at God's power seen in this beggar's situation. There's two ways in which that power is seen. There's a positive manifestation of it. There's a negative manifestation of that. The positive manifestation, we said earlier that Christ's work here in this passage has an element of the assurance of salvation. I'd say that's pretty positive, yes? When he is assuring you of salvation. But what is it? What, 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 how, how is he doing that? Well, it starts and is primarily found in verse 1. And that guides everything for the rest of the chapter. But here is Jesus who, I don't know if you know this, Jesus is God. You guys know that? Jesus is God. He's not just some guy that showed up on the scene and he kind of acts like God. He's got the power of God. He's God. God the Son. So Jesus, who is God, he takes the initiative in coming to the beggar in the first place, and he comes with the purpose of healing him. It says, it sounds innocuous to read it in verse 1, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. I know it sounds like, hey, there's not that much to that, to that verse, Mike Shockey. Well, how about we take what we know about Jesus? Let's just, let's try this. Jesus just happens along, and then much to his surprise, there's a guy who just happens to be sitting here who's blind, and oh, you know what? I've got a few minutes. I think I'll just check in here and see if I can help this guy out. No. As they say in my old country, forget about it. No way. I felt good. It was nice. I, I haven't gone there in a while. All right. Given what we know about how the whole event plays out and the fact that Jesus is answering, notice how Jesus is answering the question. They say, hey, is the reason this guy, he, there's a reason he was born blind. Is it because of his sins? Right? He goes back to David, the psalmist, saying, hey, you know, I was knit together in sin, right? I, I'm sinful before this thing ever starts, Right? Uh, Romans 5, 12 through 21, I mean, our sin is, our sin is passed down from Adam, I and mean, we've got it. We're born into death, right? He's appealing to that. The disciples are, and they're saying, is it because of his sins? Is it because of his parents' sins? They want to know why. Why was he born blind? Why is he suffering? And Jesus answers, not with a reason why. Jesus does not answer according to cause. Jesus answers according to purpose. And whose purpose? God's purpose. This thing has happened so that the power of God can be seen. So that as I display myself as Messiah, as I display myself as the Lord of the Sabbath, these things can be seen. And so you've got to conclude that no, by no means was Jesus just meandering around looking for something to do when he just happened to run into this blind beggar. And so the implications here 
are immense in terms of eternal salvation for both the beggar in this story and for us now. Look at Luke 19. I mean, in Luke 19, the same kind of language is being used. Jesus is walking along, and the same wording, he looked, he saw, who'd he see? Come on, you guys know Luke 19. Who's the guy in the tree? Zacchaeus, man, he looks up in the tree and he says, in effect, Jesus, uh, Jesus, Zacchaeus, I'm coming for you. I am coming for you. Salvation is coming to your house. Come down out of that tree. I didn't just happen along. I'm looking for you. The woman at the well, I'm looking for her. Let me ask you guys, are you saved? For those of you who say, man, I've got Jesus and he is my savior, then I know that beyond all things, I do not trust my eternal salvation to any act, any work, any God, anything, any career, any love for my kid's husband or anything else, any works on my own, I trust my eternal salvation completely to Jesus. You believe that? Yeah, well, guess what? Baptist guy says, you didn't walk down an aisle and then God said, well, I guess I'm gonna take you in. You walked down an aisle, but you didn't walk down an aisle before Jesus first came to you and said, I am coming for you specifically. I'm coming for you to take you in to myself. You have no power, says Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your transgressions, and it took Jesus, it took God to make you alive to the idea of the gospel. I'm coming for you. Jesus is coming for the blind beggar. When he sees him, he is coming and he is doing something specific for him in a positive way. So Jesus proclaims that not only has salvation come to Zacchaeus, but he does the same thing with the blind beggar because when he sees him, it means that he was specifically looking for him. And by the way, does he only find him once? in the first verse? No, later after he's been kicked out of the synagogue, which by the way, if we do church discipline around here and you get mad, guess what you get to do? Let's go to another church. I don't care, whatever, I need those guys anyway. Yeah, you do this, you're out of society. <laughs> you, don't, you don't just run to the next synagogue, you're out. You're an outcast completely. And there's the context of it. So Jesus knows that he's been cast out of not only the synagogue, but out of society. So Jesus comes to the disenfranchised. Jesus comes to those who have been pushed out, those who think they're not worthy, those who think that they've messed up too much, those who just got a little bold one day, took on some Pharisees and got themselves kicked out of the church. And Jesus comes and he says, listen, in effect, this physical healing I'm doing for you is a sign of a much more significant thing. It is a sign of the fact, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he says, man, tell me who he is because I want to, I want to worship him. And Jesus says, guess what? You're seeing him. You're seeing him. You're speaking to him right now. And he says, Lord, I'm yours. You're mine. I want that. Make no mistake, when we see the sovereign and perfect and holy God working on our behalf, particularly when he owes us nothing but wrath, it's the greatest assurance of our salvation that we can possibly know. So here we do in fact see this power of God displayed in an eternally assuring way. 
I just want to say, before we go to this next section here, have you messed up somewhere along the way? You got some blind spots? You feel the blindness like really being called out this morning? Because, oh, hey, that's what we're talking about in church. I guess I'm supposed to be convicted by that. And some of you are like, man, I am so deeply convicted right now. I don't know what to do with myself. Maybe I'm going to hell. I don't know. Let me offer a word of comfort. Remember the part about being dead in your transgressions? Otherwise, you couldn't come to Jesus, right? Otherwise, when he called you, when, when John 6, 37, when God gave you to him, you, you couldn't come unless you had been made alive. And remember how the, God doesn't start a work that he doesn't also finish, Philippians 1, 6, right? He always starts a work, and then when he starts it, he doesn't just leave it go. He finishes the work, right? You know what? You wouldn't even be worried about the fact that you were blind. You wouldn't even be worried about the fact that you may have a problem unless you were his already. Does that make sense? Okay, this is way too quiet. You got to say hallelujah or something, right? Yeah, okay, laugh will work. That'll, that'll be fine. By the way, I don't know where the voices come from. They just happen, and I can't control them. And if there was just something in your head to make you stop saying stuff, anyway. So... The New York guy may come back out here in just a minute. In the midst of providing assurance to the beggar, however, Jesus uses the same situation to pronounce a warning of potential judgment on these Pharisees, on these unbelievers, and so therefore we can see God's power displayed in a rather negative sense. And right now is where in these last few minutes, this is where we start to hone in on why this is happening in John 9. It's awesome to talk about the blind man who was made to see, but you cannot understand the significance of that if you don't first understand the significance of why Jesus is doing this in the first place. He's doing it to glorify God. And how is he glorifying God? He's glorifying God, first of all, by showing himself to be the Messiah and thereby offering this blind man an eternal assurance with a physical sign that says that he's able to do that, right? But now, we see a theme of judgment and Jesus says very clearly in John uh, in 9, 39, in verse 39, he tells you, Jesus is saying very plainly, what is this whole chapter about? What is this whole occasion about? He says, it's about the fact that I entered this world to render judgment. A positive judgment to give sight to the blind? Yes. Yes. And a negative judgment to show those who think they see that they're blind. Let me follow up with a few words. Thus saith Mike, such that if they don't get out of that and they don't confess it and acknowledge it and recognize that they're blind... They're going to stay that way, and they're going to be remaining in their sin, which is how Jesus finishes this chapter. Leon Morris says this about the Pharisees' condition. Leon says, they were so firmly in the grip of darkness that they saw only a technical breach of their law. So much so that they couldn't discern a spectacular victory of light over darkness. Yeah, yeah, you so what? You were blind and now you can see. You know what, bro? It is Sabbath and that's when this happens, so we don't care about any of that. We want to know why on the Sabbath? Who is this guy? What did he do? And why did he do it on the Sabbath? Why the Sabbath? We're right about the Sabbath. Oh, yeah. Okay, blind, whatever. Yeah, okay, great. We'll get to that later. But what about the Sabbath laws? You hear that? 
Now you're back around to the implication from our theme today, which is this. It is utterly impossible to live with gospel purpose. Impossible to live with the gospel purpose of spreading and living out the good news of what God's Messiah has come to do for his people through his people. It is impossible to live that way with the idea that we would rather be right than righteous. We would rather have all of our theological points in order. We would rather have all of our political points in order. We would rather listen to this guy and not this guy because he's saying all the things I like to hear. I'm that guy too. I get it. I'm not saying it because I'm above it. But we do that. You can't live with gospel purpose that way. It's not even remotely possible. What are you going to do? Give a part of yourself to Jesus? A little faint part of you? And the rest of you just goes on, just going through the motions. Hey, I gave some money. Awesome, thank you. And God's going to use that. Hey, I gave a little bit of my time. Awesome. But the rest of the time, you're griping about the fact that you got to work around a bunch of liberals when you're conservative. Or the other way around. you got to be in a neighborhood you don't want to be in. I don't know, it makes me uncomfortable. I'm not saying everybody does that. But you better believe that in a group this size, there's a few. Used to be one of those guys. Still can be one of those guys if I'm not careful. That's as hard as I'll be on you today, I promise. I'll say it plainly for us here. You know what? Being right about our theology, being right about our political or religious or our social orthodoxy does not make us righteous. It puts us in danger of an impending judgment by Christ himself if we are not careful to acknowledge our blind spots because all the while we're claiming, I'm good. <laughs> I go to church, man, and I read the Bible a little bit, and I'm good. I'm in the right church. I've got the right political affiliations. I've got the right friends. I've got the right job, man. Things are good. God must be blessing me, so I must be okay. Those Pharisees were pretty blessed. They were top of the town, man. People went by and bowed down to them and stuff. They had money. They had brains. They, they were awesome. Lost as the day is long. Going straight to hell. Oh, there's the fire and brimstone again. So sorry. We can have all those things, but guys, if we're never actually being moved towards conformity into the image of Christ as Romans 8 promises that we're supposed to be, then we got nothing. We most closely identify with the Pharisees. We don't identify with the blind man who submits himself in worship and just says, I am more thankful for this than anything that's ever happened in my life. I'm willing to go get kicked out of society for this to refute these guys that don't believe in this guy that obviously has to be God. All right, Mike, so that's all well and good, but how again is it that we know that the whole reason for this thing is because Jesus is issuing a warning? How, how do we know that? All the good that's going on, but you're saying that he's issuing a warning. Well, I'm glad you asked, because you've got verse 39 where he says that he does come to render judgment. <laughs> this is what he's doing. He's rendering judgment. And part of the judgment is good. He gives sight to the blind. And part of the judgment is bad. And he's really focused on that. He deliberately stirs up controversy. 
Let's cover the points. It's, it's this way. It's the Sabbath day and Jesus says, huh, it's the Sabbath. Oh, I'm going to stir some stuff up now. And he not only does the healing on the Sabbath, but here's what else he does. Hey, does anybody ever wonder about this little thing hidden in plain sight? You know, the part about spitting in the mud and putting mud on the eyes of the guy. You guys ever wonder about that? Yeah, it's like, what? what is that all about? This is Jesus who is God, who in the first chapter of this same gospel, it says that he created everything and nothing could have been made without him. Couldn't he have just said as easily, hey, eyes, open. He didn't put mud on Lazarus, did he? And Lazarus came walking right out of the tomb. What's the deal with the mud? There's a thing called the 39 Melicote. Here's the theological genius at work. Anyway, so the 39 Melicote are the 39 Sabbath laws that mimic and somewhat reflect Old Testament laws, but they've been taken to a new level in the time which Jesus is living in, which is when the Jews return from the exile to Jerusalem. A lot of things have gone afoul by this time. A lot of these laws mean absolutely nothing. They're capitalizations on laws that exist, but they've gone too far. And Jesus comes in, and as if to say, I am willing to upheave these things that you call laws, and these things that you've perverted that are part of my laws, I'm willing to upheave that if it means that you see me. If it means that you're able to see, or at least if it means that you're able to know that you're blind. The mud on the eyes is Jesus deliberately on the Sabbath day breaking that Pharisaical law. And then with an uncleanness of the spit from his mouth, spitting in the dirt. Then, where the law says you cannot take two compounds like a liquid and a powder, for instance, or a liquid and a solid, and make it into a paste as though you're going to need something. That's a real law. That's real. Mud, dough, you pick it, right? Mortar. You can't do that. And then you've got the uncleanness of the spit. And then he takes it and rubs it in the guy's eyes and tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. That's Jesus going, I am the Lord of the Sabbath and you do not tell me or anybody else what I can or cannot do when it comes to healing somebody that is in desperate need of care. I don't care what day of the week it is. This is the same Jesus that says, if a sheep falls in a pit, are you going to let the thing stay there? Meek and mild Jesus indeed. This one was instigated on purpose. Look at the irony. And then I want to close with a short anecdote. The irony here is this. What... God developed in terms of laws. And what the Pharisees then come behind him and over time develop as more laws, many of which pervert the meaning and the heart behind God's law. You know what the law is meant to do at the end of the day? Even the Pharisees knew this, the very ones confronting Jesus. The law is meant to guard you and keep you from falling into false religion. <laughs> and by the same mechanism they have fallen into, everybody say it with me, false religion. Yeah, they'd rather be right than righteous. When I asked the Lord to point out to me how it was that this affected me, you know, to be honest with you, if I am, 
animated up here. It's not an act. Just hang out with me a little bit or ask my wife or people who know me. You'll know that this is just who I am. I don't know how to control it all the time. So I'm animated, but I'm animated over Christ because I love him and because I need him and because I should be in fact dead or in prison and I get to do this? That's huge for me, huge for me. So I say, Jesus, how does this affect me? I'm still not feeling it. I'm still not there. I feel like I'm just going to be getting up there and just pointing out some kind of, you know, rules and, and we're going to get into a bunch of, you know, just stuff people got to do and how does it affect me? So my wife is about to turn in a car and I'm really frankly a little bit embarrassed to tell you this. She's about to turn in a car on a lease. And we just had the inspection done the other day. Any of you guys ever had a lease on a car? And you get the inspection done? Man, how many of you have heard, that's the best looking car we've ever seen, man. We were like, yeah, it is, because OCD guy, worse than Adrian Monk, likes to take care of the car. We're about to turn the car in June the 5th. Let's drive the car, April says to me, and she's right about that. Get the miles out of this thing, man. We've paid for them, right? So we have to turn it in. On the road we live in, we're coming around an S-curve, and as we enter out of the second curve, lady in truck coming this way, I'm in my lane, I'm where I need to be, I stop, hey, she's gonna see, she's not, she is not gonna see us, and just kind of kisses the front of that nice looking but very plastic car, anyway. I get out. Are you kidding me? Oh, I'm at that level, <laughs> by the way. Um, yeah, ask me to be a guy helping you out with congregational care. It's going to be great. Anyway, are you kidding me? Are you joking? I'm saying these things. I didn't cuss. Just want to go on record for all those who believe that God actually records all your cuss words. Um, so, yeah, I didn't cuss. Th this is... This is, April's going, baby, baby, just calm down. I'm saying, but I'm not going to calm down because this is stupid. This is stupid. You were on the phone, weren't you? You were on the phone. You weren't paying attention to what you're doing. And now we got this. Are you kidding me? It may sound funny, but I was so mad. I was so mad. I wanted to rip the side. I got a little anger thing, too. It comes up every now and again. What? Ha, ha, ha. Here's what I don't recognize. She gets out of the car, and she's not saying hardly a word. She's an older lady. Turns out to be 75. It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing that that, I, that, I'm, that, that, that happens to me periodically. She's doing this. She says, I'm so sorry. I have AFib? I didn't hear that. Seriously, come on, come on, are you serious? I went on like that for a couple more minutes. April says, baby. By the way, April should be the pastor, everyone. April Shockey, April should be the pastor and I should be the guy like taking instructions from her. It's just not the theology I hold, that's all. Anyway, but listen, I had to go to the back of the car and I had to just stand there for a second and all of a sudden, when I heard the sheriff say, hey, Ma'am, why don't you let me call the ambulance in just to see if this AFib thing has, uh, you know, if you've had any kind of adverse reaction. And, and immediately God went, yeah, you're an idiot. 
And I am overwhelmed. And I went over to her and I just, and I just, it was all I could do not to cry. I said, I am so, so sorry. I should have never gotten that angry. And I am so sorry. I mean, it makes me shake to think about it now. I was that fuming mad. You know why? Why was I mad, guys? Because I was right. <laughs> I was everywhere I needed to be, doing everything I needed to do, and dummy, that's the way I saw it then, on a phone, and she was. She told us. She confessed everything. She confessed everything. She's driving in our lane, never even sees us, and I'm that guy. And yet, when I asked for forgiveness, she immediately says, it's okay, I totally understand. And then, just so you know how Jesus works, I look down and the front license plate on her truck says, Jesus. <laughs> I hear you, Lord, I'm trying to listen. So, guys, the ultimate deal here is that if you take anything with you, know this, you're sinful. It's never a matter of whether you're sinful. <laughs> it's never a matter of whether or not you got blind spots. We got them. Here's what it is a matter of. Through no power of your own and through everything that Jesus has done to regenerate your heart and continues to do to regenerate your heart in response to him, it's only ever a matter of how you respond to God when he points out your sinfulness. Yes? It's never a question of, am I sinful? Yeah, that's the answer. But how do I respond? Am I willing to see that I'm blind because Jesus has pointed that out to me very clearly? The Pharisees were not. And as of that story, they are condemned forever, all the while under the auspices of right. And the blind man, who was completely unable, had no chance, found himself the recipient of the greatest gift, and that was to be able to see the Son of Man, to see the Savior. And he submitted to that with, who is he so that I can worship him? Are we willing to do that? That's a message for the church, amen?